0: sermon series uh, here at Trinity, I thought we would spend our time looking for Jesus in the pastoral letters. Christmas in the pastorals, it has a nice ring to it, at least to me, and so I hope that you will enjoy these next series of sermons remaining in the pastoral letters, but particularly as if we should do anything else on any given Sunday. We are going to be looking for Jesus in the pastoral letters Remember 1st and 2nd Timothy, as well as Paul's personal letter to a young man named Titus, a pastor. They were each written about 30 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were written to new and needy pastors and shepherds in tough and treacherous places like Ephesus and Crete, respectively. And they were written with an aim of encouragement and an aim to equip a couple of newly established churches to grow in the grace of Jesus and friends that truth never expires it's the same truth you and I need and we've been made to live by today so here in December we're going to unwrap a few different facets of the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the pastoral letters corporately today we're going to consider firstly the historicity of Christ in association with Timothy's timely charge to cling to his good confession that he once upon a time had made of Jesus, the historicity of Jesus. The next Sunday, we're going to look and page over to the letter to Titus in order to behold the appearance of the grace of Jesus, the history of Jesus, historicity of Jesus, and the grace or the salvation that Jesus brings and that he alone brings. Why did Jesus and his life matter so much? Why does it matter for you and I today? And then thirdly on December the 17th. We're going to go to 2nd Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to encounter the transformational power of knowing personally the risen Jesus. That the reason why he came in many ways even as we've sung this morning is to die. But not just to die. To rise from the dead so that you and I can face death. We can face death with faith, and know that death is not going to get the last laugh over us. And then the fourth and final message that I'll have the privilege of sharing this month will be on Christmas Eve night, where we will look at Second Timothy chapter two and the royalty of Jesus, where Jesus is described there as the offspring of King David, in fulfillment of God's ancient promise, ancient promise to always have one of David's descendants on the throne of Israel forever. So, four messages, four gracious glimpses of the work and wonder of God's baby boy, the Lord Jesus Christ, found, surprisingly enough, in the pastoral letters for us here at Trinity. So, where do we go to discover the face of Jesus in 1 Timothy? Well, it's noteworthy that the name Jesus, or the name Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, and I hope you'll understand and remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name, of course— It is a title, a messianic uh, description or moniker of Christ, that the name Jesus is actually used by Paul in each of the six chapters of the book of 1 Timothy. Now, of course, Paul didn't write Timothy chapter by chapter. He wrote it as a letter, a personal letter, but you can find Jesus show up in every chapter in 1 Timothy. I think that's interesting. For example, in our own passage this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, but specifically in verses 13 and 14, we read here, Paul says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before, the, before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until his return. It's interesting, not only do we have a reference to Jesus's first advent in this text, we have a reference to his next advent in this text. Friend, he's coming back will you be ready? The mere mention of the Roman prefect or governor Pontius Pilate here in First Timothy chapter 6, again three decades after the resurrection of Jesus, who was sentenced by death before the pagan ruler Pontius Pilate, who himself was under pressure from the Jews to crucify or to get rid of this messianic pretender, they thought, the fact that Paul here employs Pontius Pilate's name, he grounds this letter. He grounds the truth of Jesus in history. Paul grounds the gospel and Timothy's need for courage in the face of fire, upholding his con- his good confession in real, actual history. Anytime, and we don't do this often in our particular tradition but any time we as Christians confess say a an historical creed like the apostles creed which one section the longest section focuses on the person of Christ says i believe in jesus christ his only son our lord who was conceived by the holy spirit and born of the virgin mary who suffered under pontius pilate was crucified died and was buried listen Every line in the Apostles' Creed is pregnant with theological truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And every time we confess the Creed, we unite with the historic church that believes in a historical Christ. Jesus really came. Whenever we confess our faith in this Jesus who truly lived, he truly died, he truly rose once. From the dead, we are affirming our conviction in the Christ of history. We are saying that Jesus, we believe, the Jesus whom we have placed our faith and have staked our eternal hope in, was a real man who lived at a particular time and in a particular place. He was arrested, he was tried, though a mockery of a trial it was. He was condemned to death under a man named Pontius Pilate, who you can read about in history books. Archaeological excavations, even in the 19th or 20th century, have discovered the name Pontius Pilate on them, corroborating the account of the scriptures that Jesus really came and was really a man who encountered real people once upon a time. Our celebration then of Christmas is an echo of our historical confession that about 2,000 years ago, God visited earth. God became a man, and his name is Jesus. He took on human flesh and became a living, breathing, loving, reconciling Savior. The Christ of our Bible is the Lord of all history. That's the summation of this message. Now, it's interesting that Paul, in this passage, gives us a few different, what I'm going to call this morning, good confessions. Paul says, notably, that Jesus made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now, we will notice, albeit very quickly, that this good confession is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have that scene, it's a sad scene from one perspective, but it's a thrilling scene from another perspective because our Lord did not dodge his divine mission for you and I, but in the Gospel of John, specifically the 18th chapter, we find Jesus' good confession before Pontius Pilate unwrapped for us, where Pilate famously now asks Jesus the question, and you'll know this question, are you the king of the Jews? And in some sense, I wonder if Pilate really wanted to know the answer. Are you the king of the Jews? Why else are you brought before me? And in response, Jesus, in my view, provides the substance of his good confession that Paul alludes to in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Note with me the gospel of John chapter 18 verses 34 and following. The word should be up on the screen. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, referencing my kingship, or did others say to you about me? Say it to you about me. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And notice, for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said famously, what is truth? Truth on that day was on trial. Truth... Is Jesus. The good confession. In fact the first of three good confessions. That I'm going to share with you this morning. Is actually the foundation of all true confessions. It's the substance of the creed. That you and I confess as Christians. It is the belief that thousands upon thousands. Of our spiritual brothers and sisters. Have given their blood for over the last two millennia. The good confession that Jesus made. On that day in AD 30 is this I am Messiah I am the king I am the long awaited anointed king of the Jews or to use John 14:6 I am the way I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the father except through me The good confession friend that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate, is that the authentic authentication of his own identity as God's special son is his true identity. He is the only king that you must do business with. So like Pastor Timothy, to make a connection in his day back in Ephesus, and like you and I, perhaps in our day in 21st century America, Jesus himself one day took a stand before a hostile audience and made not a compromising committal. He didn't take a cowardly way out. He didn't complain about his lot. He made a good confession. Jesus made a good confession. I was born to be king. And that confession cost him his life. Hours later, our Lord hung, bleeding, beaten, naked on the cross. God's sacrifice for the sin of the world, dying to rise again. Loved ones, listen to me this morning. Our Christian confession is an historical confession. Ours is a confessional faith. We didn't make this stuff up. The truth about Christ has been handed down to us. Remember Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you, Jude says, about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith That was once for all delivered to the saints. We have a stewardship of truth. Ours is an historical faith with historical roots, not going back only 2,000 years, but going back 6,000 plus years to the very beginning of the Bible. Our confession of faith is summed up in a single statement that actually is found, and I'm going to share these verses over the course of the rest of the message, in a few different places, Jesus Christ is Lord. If somebody asks you, what is Christianity? The answer is, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. There's no God like our God. And it's rooted in the historical reality of a man who visited earth. God's one and only son, Jesus, really was born. I'm belaboring that point. But friends, I feel like some days we show up and we think, uh, did Jesus really come? We sing these songs, we read these stories, but do we believe to the tips of our toes that God invaded earth? That he came, that he really lived. If we believe it, it will transform us. It will change the way we live. All of these realities are pressed into 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, when Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So listen, firstly today, the first Christmas confession that we are commanded to believe, and really the foundational confession that every subsequent confession is built upon is simply this Jesus Christ is the crucified the buried the risen and returning king of kings and lord of lords you must deal with him you must believe in him you must follow him I wonder do you believe that have you staked not only this life but all eternity on that confession Now, understanding that confession, we are now better positioned to understand the other confession, perhaps the most obvious confession in this particular passage, and that's Timothy's confession, Timothy's good confession. In addition to Jesus's good confession before an evil prefect named Pilate, I want you to notice that Timothy himself, Paul says, had already made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But what was that confession? And why did it matter? Well, let's digress. 500 years. In October 1517, a little-known German monk famously nailed his 95 theses to the church bulletin board, which happened to be the castle doors at Wittenberg in Germany. Martin Luther's intent, we believe, was not necessarily to start a revolution, but rather to stir up debate leading to renewal, leading to the reformation of the Roman church. See, Luther had been reading his Bible, and he was subsequently convinced that many of the church's established practices and traditions needed serious correction. Luther sought to quell the sale of indulgences, And to correct the church's faulty view that man's salvation was somehow achieved by performing religious works. He was intent on reformation, not on revolution. But the rest, as they say of the story, is history. For the next three years, Luther was sharply admonished and urged to recant his statements opposing the Roman church. Many of you know this story, but Luther refused. In January 1521, Martin Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X. By mid-April of that year, Luther was answering allegations of heresy at the now famous Diet of Worms. Luther was given opportunity after opportunity to recant, to change his statement, to alter his confession of Christ, challenging the Pope and all would be forgiven. Finally, as some of you know, Martin Luther responded with his now famous confession. Quote, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and I will not recant, Luther said. Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. And with that, his fate was sealed, so the Roman church thought. Luther was condemned to death, but in God's providence, he was snatched away by a raiding party of captors and hidden away in a castle near the German town of Eisenach, where he spent the next part of a year translating the entire uh, New Testament from Greek into his native German tongue. God works all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Well back 1500 more years to Timothy. Notice that Timothy is written to Paul by Paul to Timothy. Who, who faced his own community of hostile uh, foes and forces in the form of false teachers. And Paul tells him to cling to his prior good confession. Pick back up with me in verse 11. But as for you, O oh man of God, flee these things. We've got to stop there. It's interesting that the short phrase, a man of God, one might think if you've read your Old Testament, you might think you find that all over the place in the New Testament. It conjures up images of Old Testament giants like Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Samuel and David and a few others of of whom are called men of God in the Old Testament. But only here and only now and only to Timid Timothy is the moniker man of God used in the New Testament. Not of Paul, not of Peter, of no other figure but Timothy, interestingly enough. is called man of God in the New Testament. You see, unlike the false teachers there in Ephesus who were puffed up with pride, as we heard last week, and ignorant of God's truth, and irritable, and looking to quarrel over mere words, and motivated by shameful greed, Timothy as God's man, and the model for God's people was to go in a totally different direction. And you cannot confess Christ until you have walked away from the world. Notice that there are three imperatives linked to Timothy's good confession here in these verses. Timothy was to flee, he was to focus, and he was to fight. What does it mean for a man of God to pursue godliness, to pursue Christ, to to resist these other things? Well, you must flee, focus, and fight. Timothy was to flee, that word flee is where we get the word fugitive in our language today. He was to flee those contemptible characteristics of the erring elders in Ephesus. Flee those things. And if you don't know what those things are, go back and listen to past, the past few weeks' messages. But not only that, you can flee something, but that's not going to bring you to God. Timothy also had to focus To follow after, Uh, a word literally it means to persecute, to to persecute after, which is interesting for Paul because Paul, when he was known by Saul, was one who persecuted the church. It's actually the same word from Acts chapter 8 and 9. He was to focus on six positive qualities that, that I'll mention in just a few moments. And then finally in verse 11 and 12, he was to fight. The word literally means to agonize, the good fight of faith. Just as the word is used in 2 Timothy 4, 7 of Paul himself, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is essentially telling Timothy this, O man of God, in view of your enemies and in view more so of the calling unto eternal life through faith in the gospel that has been entrusted to you, in view of God who gives life to all things and in view of Christ who has made his own good confession before Pontius Pilate. Timothy, occupy until he returns. Give yourself to these things until Christ comes back. Loved ones, can I remind you of something this morning? That you cannot run in two opposing directions at the same time. We've all tried it. It's what hypocrisy is all about. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot obey both God and Satan. You cannot be guided by both the word and the world. Timothy's good confession demanded that he run away on the one hand from false teaching and destructive practices. But on the other hand, he was to chase after, prosecute true godliness you got to make a choice. You cannot have two competing confessions. You either confess Christ and you move towards him, or you confess that you are God and you will move towards the world. you got to make a choice. Paul mentions then six things specifically. Note what they are. Righteousness, godliness, a prominent theme in First Timothy. Faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. That Timothy was to pursue. What are you pursuing? Is it righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness? Are you pursuing these things today? I trust you are. For me, I take these six qualities as indicative of the two great realities rooted in the gospel and actually the great confession of Matthew chapter 22 love God, love people. Love God, love people. Let me explain. The first three qualities of 1 Timothy 6.11, righteousness and godliness and faith pertain to the content of Timothy's faith in Christ. A right understanding of the gospel. He was to love God with his mind, with his heart, with his strength. But the second set of qualities, love and steadfastness and gentleness, it appears, refers to Timothy's conduct. Not just what he believed, but how he behaved before others. Love God love others. This is how the man of God, the woman of God, pursues the good confession amid the hostilities of a hateful world. A good confession inevitably results in some sort of good conduct here on earth. Not perfect conduct, but good conduct. Good conduct. True belief changes how we behave truly. Again, what was Timothy's good confession that I know you are on the edge of your seat wanting to know what it was well I'm not going to disappoint it was the same confession that Jesus made there is no other confession for us as Christians Timothy's good confession was Jesus's good confession and you remember what Jesus's good confession was I am Messiah I am king therefore Timothy's good confession was that Jesus not Timothy but Jesus is Messiah he is king of kings and lord of lords notice verse 12 timothy fight the good fight of faith take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses i love john 17 verse 3 which says roughly now this is eternal life that they might know you and that they might believe or might know me and believe in me the lord jesus christ john 17 verse 3 A good fight of faith, which we are all called to wage, requires a good confession that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is Lord and Messiah. In order to fight the good fight, you must make the good confession. Timothy, very likely, either at his baptism, which occurred roughly 20 years, we don't know exactly when, but roughly 20 years before this time, or at his ordination, when Timothy was set apart for gospel ministry, and that has been alluded to at several places in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, at one of these two points, it is likely that Paul has in view here his good confession made in the presence of many witnesses. It was that he believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. This is the one and the same good confession that Peter made in Matthew chapter 16, the same confession that Jesus promises to build his church upon. Matthew 16, verse 16, Jesus is responding to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? There are a lot of opinions out there about me, but what do you say about me? And Simon replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Listen, Paul challenged Timothy, and here's where it meets the road for us. Paul challenged Timothy to remember, to reaffirm the substance of his good confession some 20 years earlier. Not a recent confession, a long-standing confession. Remember your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because the person and the power and the presence of Jesus was Timothy's only and greatest confidence amid his own foes. If you're trying to fight the world by yourself, you're destined to fail, to fail. You got to lean into Jesus. So Paul says, essentially, Timothy, keep Jesus front and center in your thinking. Don't lose focus, Timothy. Remember who fights for you and who fights beside you. Timothy, remember where your victory comes. It doesn't come in your good performance. It comes in Christ's perfect work on the cross. Remember that your success in the ministry is seen in faithfulness, not in your fruitfulness. Beloved, nothing will give you more courage. As a Christian today, than to have a clear and committed vision of the person and work of Christ, to reaffirm with each passing year that you believe that Jesus actually was born on this earth, that he came one day so many years ago for you and for me. Timothy remained in Ephesus for the rest of his life. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, he died in AD 97 when there in Ephesus, as a bunch of folks were leading up to uh, the temple of Diana to have yet another idolatrous sacrifice, Timothy was found there preaching against them, and they beat him severely, and he succumbed to his injuries two days later. That's what tradition says. We don't know if that exactly happened, but that's what tradition says happened to Timothy, which would have been 30 more years beyond this statement by Paul in first Timothy chapter 6. And this brings us to the third and last good confession that I think is implied at the very least in the text this morning. We have considered the Lord's good confession before Pontius Pilate referenced in first or excuse me the gospel of John 18. We have reflected briefly upon Timothy's own good confession of personal faith in Messiah Jesus either at his baptism or his ordination. But thirdly, I want us to evaluate our own good confession. Presently, right now, as disciples of Jesus Christ here in 2023, our own good confession today. What do we believe about Jesus? What difference does your good confession make in the day-to-day? You know, the good confession, according to some commentaries, simply was an idiom. A phrase, a statement, referring to one's public declaration of faith in the gospel, particularly under the pain of death. To make a good confession is to say, I believe in Jesus. But oftentimes, it is to say, I believe in Jesus at the prospect of losing your life. Jesus made the good confession before Pontius Pilate, and he, his life was laid down on the cross the next few hours. Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, and his life over years was laid down for the church. He died to his old nature and was identified with the nature of Jesus in his baptism. We could say that Stephen, the very first martyr of the church, made the good confession before the Sanhedrin, that bloodthirsty band of Jewish brethren, at his death in Acts 7 and verse and, and 8 the early christians evidently listen stay with me the evident, early christians evidently insisted that each and every believer make a confession upon their faith in Jesus Christ and conversion in fact you can look in your own bibles i think the words will be up on the screen here acts 8:37 which if you're looking carefully in your esv bibles you will not find because it's a it's a verse that's not found in early manuscripts but Acts 8:37 says this, And Philip said to the eunuch, If you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And it says, And the eunuch replied, I believe, notice that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now many of us believe that that is not just a passing, spontaneous, off-the-cuff remark. It is actually a creedal statement of the early church. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. By the time that Paul wrote many of his letters, specifically Romans and Philippians, in the, late, in the early 60s AD, the Christian creed, Jesus is Lord, had been well established and well known. Consider Romans 10, 9 and 10, verses of the Romans Road that we often share with folks. Romans 10 9 says but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved the the creed is in there Jesus is Lord Paul put that there intentionally go over to Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 where in that great kenosis passage we find the creed stated again Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Acts 8.37, Romans 10.9, and Philippians two verse eleven all contain the early Christian confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, and there is no other. Our confession is but His name. It is the fact that He is our Savior. The author of the book of Hebrews, probably writing around 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, I believe, carefully connects our confession with the supremacy and the goodness of Jesus. Notice these three passages just very quickly. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Our confession. Notice Hebrews 4 verse 14 and following. Since then we have a great high priest. You know this verse. It's a good one to memorize. Uh, Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest. Who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect. Has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you are struggling with temptation, when you are struggling with opposition, remember your confession. Jesus has won the battle for you. Hebrews 10:19 and following is the final text I'll cite here. Therefore, brothers and sisters... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the most encouraging thing you could say to another Christian? Buck up, brother. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. We're going to win the day. Christ is Lord. With Timothy and with the early Christians, with all God's redeemed people, The saints in heaven, our Christian and Christmas confession is a battle cry of victory in the good fight of faith, making the good confession that Jesus Christ is Messiah, and we will follow him come what may. That's the truth we confess, and that's the truth I want to invite you to confess this morning. Is Christ your creed? Have you made a personal profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, this morning, using 1 Timothy chapter 3, would you turn over there? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which I believe is an early Christ, Christian confession of Jesus. And we looked at this several months ago in our in our study. I want to invite those of us who have committed our hearts and lives to Jesus. And just a moment when I ask you to stand to our feet... And we are going to confess what we believe about Jesus based out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. If you are not following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you not to stand and not to confess this with us. But I want to give you one other opportunity. I want to plead with you under the blood of Jesus Christ to make this confession for the very first time. So if you are hearing what I'm saying, and you are coming under conviction, and you, you believe that, that this Jesus actually is a human, was a human being who came and lived, and he died, and, and that death is available to you, friend, you can stand in just a moment, and you can confess even for the very first time that Jesus is your Lord, and then it would be, give us no greater pleasure than to disciple you and help you learn what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple of Christ. So would you stand with me? And I think the words, uh, I believe, will be up on the screen as well. And I want to have us say this confession together. And then I want to very quickly point out just two or three things about this confession. And then I'll pray and we'll move to a a time of remembering our, our Savior and the Lord's Supper. Repeat with me great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world and taken up in the glory notice what this says don't sit down yet notice what this says Jesus became a man he was manifested in the flesh the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, we are told, was vindicated by the Spirit. I believe, based upon Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that's a reference to Jesus' resurrection by the Spirit of holiness from the dead, vindicating. His identity as God's son, his incarnation, his resurrection. The next statement is a bit controversial. He was seen by angels. The word angel is the word messenger. I don't think this is heavenly beings. I think it's actually messengers who saw him in the appearances. So I take that to be a reference of the appearances of 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6 and Acts chapter 1 verse 3. He became a man. He really died. He was really seen by many, many people. And then we see next, he was proclaimed among the nations. That is the mission, the militant mission of the church in proclamation. He was believed on in the world. That is the invitation of faith that one must have to embrace salvation. And he was taken up into glory in his heavenly ascension, in his rightful rule, even right now. Let's say it one more time. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Christ Jesus, we confess that you are Lord. Reign over our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.